and welcome to Twin Peaks The Return, a season three podcast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing part nine of the series. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Hayley Inch. And we have a special guest with us today. Oh my goodness, we do, and I'm so excited. Uh, so our guest for today is, drumroll, hi, hi, Stephanie Lai. And Stephanie Lai is a Chinese-Australian writer and occasional translator. She loves writing long, meandering think pieces on Asian horror, climate change dystopias, and cranky ladies. And she's a climate change adaption specialist and likes to speculate on where we're going with this planet, which I think is a uh, issue there's also something Lynch is pondering right now during the series. Um, and Stephanie's especially invested in the return to, of Josie to Twin Peaks, aren't we all? Justice for Josie. And due to the fact that her dad has Alzheimer's, is pretty convinced she's going to stop watching soon unless Dougie starts being Cooper again, which leads us into our opening segue of, is it okay to quit telly? Mm, well, what, are you, what is your take on that? Well, How do you feel like quitting telly? I feel like quitting telly all the time. Most of the things I watch I never actually finish. There are very few television series I've actually finished because most of the time I just – something something that's been bothering me hits me somewhere along the way um, and I've especially been feeling it, that about Twin Peaks. I'm pretty mm-hmm. new to Twin Peaks and um, I started watching it when Hayley watched it. Uh, <gasps> Stephanie was my watching buddy. Oh, right, so yes. we would watch it in different locations. We'd w- put on the same episode basically at the oh, same yeah. time and we would just like – pester each other all through the watching and yell at each other and she was a wonderful sounding board thank you (laughs) and it had the convenience of not having to leave our own houses but still have each other's company as we had theories and we couldn't spoil each other so we couldn't go on the internet but we could still work out what was happening so emotionally I'm not as invested as many other people are into Twin Peaks I don't have 20 years of investment into it and so I feel a lot better about the idea that Twin Peaks is making me incredibly uncomfortable sometimes um, I mostly watch Twin Peaks by myself and um, a lot of the time whenever Dougie's scenes happen I have to kind of uh, draw back from the television I still let I still let the episode run but I have a lot of trouble with it and it was somewhere around I think probably about episode six I realized what my problem was which is how similar it is to how my father's progression the progression of my father's illness went um At first when it started, you know, we were kind of in denial about it and he would keep going the way that he was and you'd just kind of act like everything was normal even when little tiny things were wrong. Um, And even now he's been in full-time care for three years and even that doesn't change how we treat him we still treat him as if there's nothing wrong even as we have to feed him um even as he has he had to go into care because he needs to be changed and he needs to be wheeled around because he doesn't really walk anymore and we still act like nothing is wrong even though everything is terribly drastically wrong Mm -hmm. and at the beginning at least you could see him kind of trapped within you know sometimes he would have these moments of lucidity or he would know an answer but not be able to convey an answer and often I feel like that's what we're seeing with Dougie and and you know there's been a lot of chatter about you know when are we going to see Cooper Mm. come out of Dougie and what is the progression of that how long will that be a lot of discussion about you know why is Lynch kind of taking us on this journey making us wait this long I know Hayley has has this um, idea that it's about how Kyle didn't want to have to act as (laughs) Cooper and so he gets to be as many characters that aren't Cooper as possible for as long as possible but for me it just makes me incredibly uncomfortable Mm. and because I think because I'm not so committed to it I'm kind of I don't know how long I can sit this close to home and enjoy what Lynch is trying to tell me. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing. Twin Peaks deals with so many really, really serious, emotionally heavy 
and and overwhelming issues like sometimes obviously and sometimes not obviously like in 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 the case of Dougie and uh, how he kind of represents people with with you know degenerative illnesses in in a way like there's been a lot of talk online about this a lot of people have made this parallel and I think for a lot of people it's it can be cathartic like there's so many I've re- re- I've read so many amazing things about people who've particularly experienced say like sexual violence or domestic violence and they've found Twin Peaks the way it explores those kind of issues and doesn't shy away from how dark and horrible and hidden and everywhere that they are and they've found that a very cathartic experience but by the same token whenever I speak to people who haven't seen Twin Peaks before I'm very upfront with them saying like look it deals with really horrific things and I do not blame anyone in the world for one finding out what the show's really about and going no I don't really want to watch that and secondly anyone through the journey of Twin Peaks coming across something where they're just like I cannot deal with this and deciding not to go any further. And I think it's a discussion that, yeah, we particularly don't have within pop culture that much, particularly something that's as revered and considered like, you know, something like Twin Peaks that is again and again said as one of the greatest TV shows ever and you have to watch it if you're you're into pop culture and that sort of thing. There's very, very little leeway within pop culture discussion where someone is given an out. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is... That is a troubling thing. I think anyone should be able to give up any sort of pop culture that's disturbing them or that they're not getting anything out of it. I don't think anyone should have to finish anything just for the sake of finishing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can't give up the show because I have a podcast, but Stephanie, if you want to give up the show, like definitely, as, as one of your very good friends, I will full-heartedly support you in that if you make that decision. Definitely. It's something I've considered, but something else I was just thinking about <gasps> just then is how one of the outs that we are given is if a show uh, kind of deteriorates, but only if we all agree that the show deteriorates. Jumps the shark. I was suddenly mm. thinking of The West Wing, where if you say to people, oh, I never finished season seven, people go, oh, that's fine. Mm. Like that's totally understandable yeah. that you didn't finish. Yeah, like, you know, I I didn't, you know, people who say I didn't go past season four, four or five of Buffy and you're just like, fine, totes fine. So, really? so there's a yeah. kind of there's kind of a we consensus. We may get emails about that. <laughs> Personally, season six is my favourite, so there's our caveat. <laughs> I think that so long as there's a consensus, you're allowed to um, mm. quit Team Peaks. Yeah, well, a lot of people did give up after Laura's Killer was revealed and a lot of people were like, don't bother with mm. season two, mm. you can skip to the end. Yeah, you even see that now when people were recommending parts of the original seasons to watch and a lot of them were just like, you know, maybe watch all of season one, the first couple of episodes of season two, the episode where the killer's revealed and then the very last episode of season two, like so much of season two was just like completely thrown yeah. out the window mm. by, by a lot of As people. As even is mentioned in this particular episode that we're about uh, to talk about. Some... <laughs> is that a segue, Andy? It kind of is, <laughs> That was very subtle. Thank you. But also it's one of my favourite moments so far, I think, is some of Albert's <laughs> lines in this particular part. Okay, so we start with Laura's golden ball face drifting down towards Twin Peaks as we have with every other episode. But now, after part eight, it has extra resonance. Are we actually watching the descent of Laura from the... You know, cosmic uterus saxophone on into the or whatever people want to call it. <laughs> whatever they want, because that's fucking fabulous. <laughs> well, it's a combination of mine and Diane's suggestions. I can't remember exactly what they called it, but there's something much better than my suggestion. Um. Anyway, so now are we looking at Laura's like actual return? I didn't even think of that, and now you're really now, yeah no. Yeah. This yeah, Laura as saviour. 
Yeah, but I, no, I, no, no. But I mean, as in like the opening credits, as like she is literally the floating ball, like yeah. coming down yeah, on it, far out. Yeah, it's beautiful. So now, yeah, so we, suddenly everything we've already seen is recontextualized. Brilliant. Well, at least that's one way of looking at it. Also, the green color around the, the lettering in Twin Peaks. Was it brighter? No, no, no. It's just the same as it's always been. But now, oh. I'll be giving all this information. It's the particular shade of green that suggests, you know, the ring, that suggests the cigarette lighter thing in Cooper's car mm. in the earlier parts. So it's this, like, spiritual suggestion. Which Oh, my God. You've gone hard and I we're only at the credits. Know, Jesus. <laughs> okay, so we start with the farm. Doppelcoop is walking along a dusty road. He walks toward a red handkerchief hanging from a fence. He's yeah. covered in blood. And then a very helpful man called Hutch turns up. <laughs> Played by Tim Roth. Oh, one of my life's great passions, Tim <laughs> Roth. Um, that was the moment. Like, it was literally only, like, four minutes in and I was sitting there just going, like, yeah, I forgive you for the shit show that was part eight, David, because you just <laughs> gave me Tim Roth on a platter. Thank you. I was in a room of people who screamed when Tim Roth turned up on screen. <laughs> I can't blame them. It was such Good a surprise, people. But Good so, people. There was such a popular theory going around that Roth will take over from Bowie as Philip Jeffries and now that's been shot. So, oh, there you go. But, yeah, I, I very much did enjoy him as, like, the most open and cheerful hitman I think I've ever seen in a show. Just like, hi, how are you? Great. I'll do this for you. Pash my wife. It's great. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, the farmers are sleeping out the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's pretty chilling. Um, and then we turn out that this establishment is a farm that you know, he and Chantel, Jennifer Jason Lee returns. <gasps> Finally. Some people didn't think that would happen. Here she is. No, no. Um, and she uh, seems very, they both seem very keen and very suggestible. Extremely suggestible. I'm slightly concerned about such suggestible people being around Double See, this, his suggestibility was one of the things I thought may not, he might not have that power anymore now that Bob's been taken out of him, mm. if Bob's been taken out of him. But doesn't, it seems like they're very pliant. In fact, willing to give over their mobile phones for him to use. Mm. Um, that was some amazing mobile phones. Yes. The Bling phone. I was yeah. disappointed when they shot the Bling phone because <laughs> I, I, I felt I felt like I was, you know, much much of this episode, in fact, which we'll get to to later, made me feel like I was sixteen again, and the <gasps> Bling phone was definitely a part of that. Mm. It was all very mid two thousands. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he gets fixed up, cleaned some clothes, and then he texts around the dinner table. Conversation is lively. To an unknown number. But we will find out who that is yeah. later on. Well, in the next... Poor tent. <laughs> um, so he seems to send a message to the, the guy from Mulholland Drive, Duncan Todd, in Las Vegas, who I still keep calling, oh, the guy from... <laughs> the Winky, dude from Mulholland Winky's Drive. Winky's Diner, yeah. yeah. Um, Patrick Fisher, fantastic actor. And he calls him and says, did you do it? Not yet. It better be done next time I call. And then he gets given some new guns from Hutch. Um, and says, I want you to kill the warden in the next two days. And Hutch is totally cool with this. Oh, just very, he's just like, oh, just a warden? Oh, sure. Sure, buddy. Yeah. And go. he's super flexible about it too. Mm. At home, at work. On the just, way to work. Just so casual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he attached my wife and Chantel seems to be pretty keen for that. I have mm. such issues with that though mm. because... Why didn't he just say, hey, boss, pash me? Because I just, I just get the feeling Tim would have really loved that if that, if that had happened. I think the whole fandom would have loved that if e- it happened. Absolutely. <laughs> and so the fact that it had to be pushed back onto, onto Chantel, I think is encapsulates some of my problems, I think, with Twin Peaks, that it, it had to be pushed, the sexuality had to be pushed back onto the lady friend as opposed to the gentleman friend. I would have felt so differently about that scene. Like, that would have just wrapped that scene up perfectly for it, me. It really doesn't make sense to me that Twin Peaks isn't more queer. Like, yeah. it, like it's one of the major 
things that I always have with the show. There's all these obvious things really, really pointed out that in any other narrative, you would assume there would at least be some kind of unrequited queer tension going on between particular characters. Maybe and it's just, even, nah. Maybe even some terrible queer baiting, mm. which I would not approve of, but would make sense. But would be something. Yeah. And instead we get none of that and we just get some really aggressive... The yeah. thing with the gum was very distracting. Yeah, <laughs> very disturbed, very yeah, disturbed. Statistically, out of 217 cast members, you would think around statistically 17 to 20% of them would have these sorts of urges and intentions. And you would hope. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Oh, this is why we all turn to fan fiction. Oh, we do, and there's so much. This, this episode gives us so many <laughs> options for shipping. <laughs> oh, my God. It's been the most generous gift yet to shippers, I think. In <gasps> anyway, she gives him a kiss. I wish it was more. I'll take a rain check which was a nice, interesting throwback to some earlier uh, conversation in season one. Um, and then she gives him a packet of Cheetos, oh. a corn-based snack. Corn. Mm. Corn. Because, of course, yeah. as we've all learned in our break where we've all been feverishly reading around everyone's theory is about part eight, we now know the corn is evil. Yeah, it's, it's been suggested, but now it seems to have an extra dimension of evil, as does everything <gasps> after part eight. Yes. So now no. we've got this whole political <laughs> reading that you can mm. do with corn and... Yeah, no, the there was a really fabulous article that Andy shared with me, which I then shared with Steph and we yelled about a lot, which was... Where did you source it from, Andy? Um, it came from... Oh, it was, came from Twitter? <laughs> I would wish I could be more specific. I'm actually doing some research right now to try no, and track down it's where okay. it's okay. I have it, it here. It's, I'll find it's out. It's basically explores the political dimensions of corn and the atomic bomb in the, in quite and oil and, and oil. oil yes very specifically cows oil. very slightly on cows very slightly on cows and we're introduced to david lynch's extreme cow art which i'm really gratified to know exists <laughs> here we go so it's on a site called explore the glass box and dot weebly dot weebly and the article is called the pain and sorrow of convenience oil and corners avatars of atomic age suffering in twin peaks yes we can put the, is, i'll put the link oh. to that article in the show notes yeah well, no so it's a ripper further. of a read and it definitely reconciled uh part eight to a more acceptable realm for me <laughs> that, that, that kind of that, that you know made sense in ways that were meaningful to me personally mm. Then uh, Doppelcoop leaves the farm, orders uh, Hutch to kill the phone and get out of this place. And then they Fantastic shoot. shot, Hutch. Yeah. Just just one barrel of a shotgun, boom. It's very Explode useful, useful thing to have. Phone. Although, uh, so does it, what, what's your take on, on uh, Doppelcoop now? Do you think he's very different from before the weird exorcism? I don't think really because I'm, I'm still sticking to the Doppelcoop made his choices and he's still who he is having made those choices even without the presence of bob mm. within him i agree um i know we only saw him for such a short time in this episode but i feel like he's he's the same he's not any different at all do you disagree i w- no i agree i just wish i didn't <laughs> i was just hoping for some tra- andy just loves debate <laughs> I, I love that too but i also love i can't tell but be optimistic I know that Lynch and Frost have really good intentions. They want to explore things. They want to give us love to triumph over evil at some point. But, and I was hoping that would be, might be a slight progression along that trail. But No, no. One of them's got to die, Andy. Oh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> but what if, the, what if the thing that he's giving us is that um, it, you don't need to be possessed by an evil demon because humans are evil? Maybe yeah, that is... is I think that's a very Haley, important point Haley to make. Haley did argue this very well a few episodes ago. Mm. Yeah, and, and we were somewhat controversial. <gasps> Was it? Yes. Oh, this is. No, I don't read. Hayley. I don't read any feedback. <laughs> <laughs> no, but overall, I mean, like the twenty-five years later site, they loved it. They pulled it out. They put it in an article. Oh, thanks, buddies. Yeah, they're on board. 
Yeah, okay, so it's kind of like a Voldemort Harry Potter situation. One of them has yeah. to die. Someone has to die. It's the old school binaries. Yeah. Uh, and then the next scene, we're on a plane. Um, Cole is on a plane with Tammy. Only this plane, this is a shot of the plane that we saw last time, only it's reversed. The, num- oh. the numbers are written. Oh, that's going to get the, the conspiracy theorists just oh, like they're, they're going to be sitting there counting windows. They're a muck. Ooh! <laughs> they're a muck with um, theories on this. Um, then the Steph g- is making an excellent face right now. <laughs> this is like this whole other world for me. The the in-depthness of... Oh, of, my God. I've got some things I can send of you. Of Twin Peaks <laughs> theories. I'm so into it. I love it so much. It'll make your brain <laughs> melt. Um, so, I'm sorry. So, we, we're on the plane. Um, they get a message from Colonel Davis. Albert and Diane are asleep, but... Um, uh, not Col- for long. No, not for long. No, because Col- I can't believe anyone's trying to sleep around Cole. <laughs> no, or anyone could sleep around Diane when she gets tense, which is mm. all the time. Um, so there's a, a great, um, some great banter from uh, from Cole misinterpreting what Colonel Davis is saying to him. I don't appreciate your tone. And then he gets told about Buckhorn. He gets told about the um, escape of Doppelcoop and Ray from uh, from Yangshan Prison. It's just dominoes one by one. I know, and yes, yeah, so everyone's getting They're up just to date. learning shit. Finally. <laughs> Yes, it's great. Sharing of information is something we haven't seen very much of so far, and mm. so I'm always really glad when that happens because it feels like mm. things are progressing. Um, by golly, we're over East South Dakota now, and then we get um, the mention of Lieutenant Knox, which is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. She's great. And then Cole is brought up to date um, by, by jokes, and then rather than return, then he has to convince Diane to be able to reroute the plane to uh, take in this new information, and she shakes some empty bottles at him, which he goes off and dutifully fills for him, <laughs> replaces for him. Look, if bribery is what gets Diane to do things, then mm. I think that's really reasonable. Yeah, I think we're and and I, I particularly like the fact that, yeah, Cole knows he has to run this by Diane. Um, and then we get one of Albert's great lines of the episode. <laughs> I know, I know. Fuck you, Albert. Um, and then <laughs> Diane's phone is blocked and she's very exasperated. Well, for one, what kind of phone jammer makes a big red blot appear on a your lynch phone? phone jammer. A lynch phone jammer. <laughs> I would jammer. like to download, download one. Oh, man. <laughs> it's the largest font possible, please, he said to the designer. Uh, but then we get a phone call directly after that on um, the satellite phone held by Tammy. And she looks anxious and then uh, she says, yes, I understand, I'll be over. And then we get the Warden Murphy news. And then we cut to Vegas Police Station. Dun, dun, dun. Where Bushnell is answering questions to the police about why Dougie would be attacked. Which is great to see some actual police investigations because, as we'll explore a bit later, sometimes people are a bit slow off the mark to be able to investigate crimes that happen in this show. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Also, I have a question. Yes. I don't know if you've discussed it. The Fusco brothers. Yes. Yes, the three of them. The three of them. The detecting Fusco brothers. Would they really all be together in the same precinct? I don't know. Is that how that would work? Surely surely there would be some sort of nepotism yes. problems or something <laughs> like that. As soon peaks, the show is rife with nepotism. Yeah. <laughs> but there's brothers yeah. replacing brothers all over the place. I feel like it's maybe one of the few instances where the representation of the law in Twin Peaks actually perhaps mirrors some of real life in that, yes, no, <laughs> they're all there because of nepotism. Yes. Yeah, the mm. Harry Frank scenario, there's the brothers running the casino in Twin Peaks, the brothers running the casino in Vegas. Yep. Mm. Yeah, no, there's a lot of brothers and there's a lot of trios, particularly yes. in this episode, mm. as pointed out by friend of the show, Emily L. Stevens, in her recent uh, AV Club recap. Then we get this really great interaction between Bushnell and the three... Sto- I can't help but think of three stooges every time. They're kind of funny, they get stuff done, but they're kind of ludicrous as well. Mm. And the then cackling hyena brother. Oh, yeah. Just him. Dear Lord. He's great. Like, like, like he's definitely being shouldered by the other two in his job. You can tell that. Yeah, nepotism. absolutely. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, and so as he uh, answers these questions, Bushnell kind of considers things and tenses his fist in a stance that makes you think, oh, yeah, he was a boxer. Uh, so it's my opinion that Tom Sizemore's character, who plays the evil insurance guy, um, may have put the hit out on Dougie, which is why, that's at least why, that's what Bushnell thinks. So I think that's why Bushnell tenses his fist and leaves and goes to have stern words with him because this seems like a logical thing too because he knows Dougie's uncovered his scams. You and I need to work together to get some answers, says um, one of the Fuscos to Dougie. And so then they make the discovery that he doesn't seem to have existed before 1997, mm-hmm. which is possibly the year in which he was manufactured yes. by Doppelcoop. No passport, no tax records, class records, or birth no. certificate. Although I, I, I do like the logical conclusion that the Fusco's brothers get to, which is witness, witness protection. protection. So, mm. Because of course, of course that's what you'd think. Yeah, that would totally make sense. Um, and then they decide to have a gag about a taillight. Yeah, there's so dollars. many bizarre little digressions <laughs> in this I episode, yeah. which I think I, I don't know, I needed that kind of tone, mm. I think. I enjoyed episode. the humour from the totally mm. random digressions. We did not need a continued joke about a taillight that no. continued in the car park, but we got <laughs> it, got it. Yeah. and it was great. And then we get some random mention of remember the Australian guy with the pliers, which causes a lot of hilarity amongst the brothers. And then the lead Fusco brother has the ingenious idea of getting the prints and DNA from a coffee cup. And I'm sure this isn't legal. Like, surely they have to warrant it. Like, even if it's within the police station, you know, it hasn't willingly been given. No, that's true. But if there are a police precinct that embraces nepotism to the extent uh, that they want to do that, that I don't there's think a trio of brothers just running shit. Exactly. Yeah. Then uh, we get the news that the Ike, Ike the Spike has been located in an off strip motel. Yeah, it's and a fabulously kitschy motel from the it outside. Is. Yeah. Mm. And it's Echoes, I think it might be the same motel used in No, uh, no Country for Old Men as well. It Ooh. seems to be very, very similar to a lot of people. And then we get a really, really cool shot of Dougie looking at the American flag with a bit of America the Beautiful playing and then a brown dead electricity patch behind him. Mm. This loaded with symbolism and I loved it to bits. Um, and then he watches a woman in red shoes cross. <laughs> Which kind of mirrors... A little bit Audrey's introduction to Cooper in the first season, which I felt was a disgusting tease by the end of the episode because, spoilers, everyone, Audrey is still not here. I did a lot of yelling about how we saw every horn except the only one I truly care about. Mm. I can't believe we even got Johnny. Yeah, I know. Seriously, who thought he was going to come back? I'd totally forgotten who he was and I had to look him up. Um, yeah, That's I'm- how much he hadn't registered. <laughs> No, well, I did posit the theory on Twitter that Johnny Horn could be the father of Richard Horn, and nobody commented mm. for two hours. And I said, "I'll just leave it there," mm. because it seems to be like a totally dead theory. And nevertheless, oh, is it though? Is it though? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Hazel it. comes out on top. <laughs> <laughs> Does not happen, but um, God knows I get give it a lot of shots. Uh, so, but then also Diane has these same red shoes. Mm. Uh, and I seem to remember Denise having red high heels at some point. Although she possibly I'm, I'm did at some point. Not I'd have to look back. Suggesting that that's who is being well, triggered. Well, maybe, maybe it was just kind of a composite of obviously a lot of female characters that he'd he'd met and also, had been important to him. Um, yes. From Firewalk With Me, the... Dan- Lil? Lil. Didn't she have red shoes as well? Or was she all blue? Was her she dress was blue. I thought her, her dress shoes were red. Oh, we'll have to go back and investigate. No, her dress was red and she had a blue rose. Sorry. Hey. Now it's back to me. Yes, and then a red wig. Yeah. Mm. I can't remember the colours of her shoes though, but I'm sure one of our yes. many listeners will High heel shoes are definitely a thing, I've yes. noticed. Particularly ridiculous ones that you can't actually walk in properly and all the women have these like weird wobbly gates of, oh my God, I'm just trying to stay upright. But then the red shoes lead Dougie's attention to the electricity 
um, mm. points, which are possibly reminiscent of birth, like yes. a, a b- literal birth canal. <laughs> um, and then we get to cut to the motel room number 5333 where Ike is on the phone, which is a very clear, very clearly the same shot that we got in part four, I think. Yes, when, when we were introduced. first introduced to him. Because there's the mm. levels of the bottle, the levels of whiskey in the bottle, of scant regard for continuity. <laughs> Lynch doesn't give any shits about continuity. <laughs> Maybe it's a new not, bottle. Not Did you incidental that? continuity anyway. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Um, and so then he's leaving a phone message for somebody called JT. Who mm. I was, oh, is that, is that Mr. Todd? And then Mr. Todd's first name is not, does not begin with J. So he says no cigar taking medical leave. So I enjoy the hitman can take medical leave. <laughs> yeah. He's on some really good insurance plan. He's a pretty good for an American. Yeah, I know. Very good. And we get a throwback to the Deer Meadow, Deer Meadow Shuffle cue from Firewalk With Me, which was, I thought, Claire Ninanarelli, friend of the show, would probably be... Oh, she'd be yelling she'd be cheering right at that, that point. Yeah, because it is a great piece of music. Um, he finishes the bottle, he drinks. He has a pained expression on his face, and then he gets swiftly arrested out uh, in the corridor. Revealing Those Fuscos are good for something, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really well executed. Um, and then we get a beautiful shot of the sheriff's station. We go from one police force to another. The sunlight shining beatifically through the Douglas firs. And then we get a bizarre scene of Lucy and Andy shopping the online. The best scene. <laughs> do they not have things to do? No, because when you're at work and you're pretending to work, you're always just looking at furniture. Don't you do this at work, Andy? No, but if I had been recently charged with investigating a hit and run, knew that there were Chinese designer drugs coming into town, had some aggravated sexual assault happen at the nearby bar, I would not be looking at furniture. I'd be yeah, but you're. Some but are you Lucy and Andy? Yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah, no. Lucy and Andy are very special. Yes, that's true. But they also seem to have an awful lot of time on their hands. <laughs> Why is Andy's desk at the reception as well? I think it's actually a room behind the reception. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first time we've seen that because I didn't. Mm. Used to be yeah, I didn't realize that you could. Yeah, they were literally that close to each other because normally when you see like like later in the show when you see Lucy at her desk eating sandwiches, and the angle that the camera's at, you can't really quite see what's behind her mm. and how it's laid out topographically. Whereas the camera's at a really interesting angle during this scene where you're looking over Lucy's computer screen and yeah. you can see Andy sitting at his desk behind her. And I just really love this interplay of them. Kind of having an argument, but they're not really having an argument because all each of them are doing is trying to manoeuvre to make sure that the other one gets the chair that they like. And they're wearing the opposite colours as well. Wearing the (laughs) opposite colours and everything was very complimentary. And like, dear Lord, no wonder they've lasted this long. They're clearly just... They've mm. just found their niche. I know a lot of people got quite annoyed with the Andy and Lucy scenes earlier on. And, like, you know, there, there are arguments to be made that, you know, it is very strange that these characters are in this kind of suspended state of sameness. Mm. But this was the kind of moment that I personally really needed yeah. <laughs> after after the past few runs of episodes. Yeah, I loved it. The next shot we get in the, in the uh, station is of Chad having lunch. Yeah. You know who, what was the best thing about that whole scene though? What? Hawk being so obstreperous and just he's just standing so d- there. Yeah, he's just so displeased with Chad's entire existence. Like the fact that he is that he is even there. It's so great because it's so, so easy to think of Hulk as this beatific character, but then he did kick the crutches out from <laughs> from someone in the previous um, season two, I think it was. Mm. And then he's capable of doing stuff like this. Which is yeah, cool. no, he's he's. You know, he Hawk knows how to do some passive resistance mm-hmm. and he is showing us how to do it. Yeah, that was beautiful. It's huh? great. It's really Did great. anyone spot the name of Chad's magazine? Because I looked and I've been trying to investigate online. No. I think it's a gun magazine called Lock and Load, but I'm possibly wrong. No, it would be, wouldn't it? Was it was something like that, yeah. 
Before we go any deeper into that scene, we need to backtrack to the Briggs household scene. Bobby time. Yes. Bobby visits his mom. He visits his mom. Like, Steph, like, because I feel like Steph, we had very, very similar feelings when we were watching the original series and we spent a lot of our time texting each other about how much we hated Bobby and every time Bobby appeared on screen, we were so mad. We'd be like, and fuck he Bobby, why is he still here? <laughs> And now I really love Bobby. Like he's been redeemed in I don't even think he's had more than about 15 minutes of screen time maximum and I I feel completely re- I yeah. feel like he's completely redeemed himself just by mm. those half a dozen scenes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. even just that beautiful talk with his mother where she says to him, your father never gave up on you and your father always knew that this was where you were going to come to. I mean, imagine being someone who'd been like Bobby who was basically like one of the worst friggin' teen delinquents in an entire town and who then shot a man who shot a man which we're not talking about i don't think we're ever gonna come back to that <laughs> i've forgotten he shot a man he did he no, shot a drug dealer yeah for, for baby laxative <laughs> yeah it wasn't even real drugs it wasn't even real drugs <laughs> anyway <laughs> canadians oh. can't trust them it's this really beautiful arc in a way of you two can be a teen fuck up and yeah and make good and make good. And you don't even have any truck with hair dye. No. Less, not at lesser all. men would. Silver fox it, man. Mm, Go for it. Yeah. Um, and I love that when we get um, Betty Briggs, she's on a MacBook, just chilling. Yeah, no. <laughs> she's up to date. Yeah, she's not even. She knows like, what's what. We haven't seen many MacBooks so far. There's been no. mainly PCs. Lots of Dells. Awful lot of Dells, yeah. Yes. Mm. There was a Lenovo, wasn't there? Oh, there was there? Yes. There was at some You're point. Right. Um, we're here to talk about Agent Cooper's visit to Garland the day he died. She doesn't even need to hear the rest of the sentence. She's got this. She knows. Yeah, she's been expecting She knows. It. And we get a cue for, of Audrey's prayer, which then turns into a brand new piece of music by that Lamenti called The Chair. Oh. Nice. Agent Cooper left that day. Garland pulled me aside and put his hands on my shoulder. We get a lot of shoulders. Mm. Yes. Because it? we saw it earlier when uh, Gordon was convincing Diane to come to South Dakota and he very obviously has like a hand on her shoulder and is like gripping quite tightly. Somebody's going to do a super cut of the shoulder use in this episode. It's going to be surprising. I tried to ask him what it was about, but he wouldn't say anything. He said, when they come to to ask you about Agent Cooper, you give them this and now you're here. And then she she keeps trying to give them coffee, which they're not, they just like want to get some answers. Um, And then she's not going to have it until they get answers. Then it's okay for coffee. So, did you recognize this chair? Did you all go, like I did when we saw this chair? No. Okay. Soz. (laughs) It's the same one from the very beginning of part one that the giant slash the question mark slash the fireman is sitting on. Same pattern. Same pattern. So, my first thought was like, oh my God, it's going to be this cheliporting chair that's going to send you into the red room. But no. No, sorry, not the Red Room, the White Lodge. Or the <gasps> slash, yeah. Oh, I want a teleporting chair. But it's equally magical in the way that mm. it contains this special secret cylinder, which immediately confuses everyone apart from Bobby, who's all over this. And it's so great to see Bobby, like, needing to look to his heritage. It's actually his heritage that's leading them to the answers, not necessarily Hawks, even though Hawks heritage, TM, has, no. l- <laughs> has given us some um, Laura Palmer I'm Palmer still real mad pages. about that. <laughs> Yeah, but it's lovely because Bobby, you might go, oh, he's got, what's he doing being a sheriff? He's not going to be very good at being a sheriff. He's killed a man and he's, you know, he's... No one knows he killed a man, Andy. Okay, sorry, nobody's <laughs> talking about it. But now he's like key. He's essential to solving this mystery. So it's beautiful the way that they've repositioned him. I like that he got to keep being a troublemaker in that he let them try and work it out without revealing the whole time he knew exactly how to work it out. <laughs> <laughs> I get the feeling Bobby probably does this a lot. Yeah, that was a great little scene. Well, fellas, let's have that coffee. And suddenly they're all on board. It's beautiful. 
In, before we before we go back to the um, station, we get the shot of uh, Jerry in the forest. Jerry and his foot. Oh, Jerry it, and his foot. Jerry's <laughs> tripping balls, guys. What kind of fucking pot is he growing up in those mountains? It's bonkers. Well, this is the thing. I think the drugs in Twin Peaks have now like some seriously next level shit. Yeah. Like, it's not only is he like on his hydroponic cannabinoid. I can't remember what he referred to it as in part one, but I think it's to do with sparkle. Oh. I think maybe somebody's mixing up sparkle with his pot or there's some sort of... There's something. There's definitely some kind of... Can it not of just be some otherworldly business, you know? Like maybe the White Lodge is like leaking into <gasps> his drugs or something? Oh. Well, yeah. I think drugs are, ex- are a way you can access the spiritual realm. Mm. But I don't know if it's a really good way of accessing it because we're seeing the 119 woman... No, and it just seems... out. Yeah, it just seems to be a way to put yourself in a very bad state because it seems like Jerry's not having a good time on these trips. He's not mellow. How do you guys feel about Jerry? Because he's... A, he's an odd figure, well, isn't in, he? in part one, he was pretty disgusting and lecherous and... Mm. He just seems like such an outsider now. Like, he's just existing in his own little realm. Like, like, like even Ben can't really... Like, they still converse like brothers, but it's clear that they're... <laughs> They're, they're really on completely different planets, essentially, mm. and, and completely different moral perspectives now. And it's, yeah. I've never bizarre. enjoyed Jerry, any part of him, and I just can't enjoy his storyline at all. Mostly I think it's because I'm so tense being like, where is Audrey? Every time I see a mm. horn, yeah. I can't enjoy their storyline because right. I don't know where that's going to end up and where Audrey's going to be introduced. And the fact that we seem to be spending so much time with Jerry's shenanigans when he hasn't redeemed himself in any way when Jacoby <laughs> returned the fact that he's a libertarian in the forest just made every single minute with him like torture because I hated him the whole way through my first introduction and now that he's returned I'm just like why are we wasting time with you Lynch come on why must you do this to me and that's how I feel about Jerry in the forest right, even yeah. though I did laugh at his at not his foot Yes. Mm, yeah, yes. and the voice I thought was interesting. So we get a cut to the Horn household looking quite different than it did um, back in 1991 mm-hmm. or 1990. Um, and then somebody called Mary, I think, has let um, Johnny Horn out of his room. Not a good move. And then we get to hear Sylvia, Sylvia Horn's voice. Mm. To, to almost give us a complete batch of horns. Yeah, because she was one of those characters who just completely disappeared from the original series. Yeah, and another one woman who was very tense and underwritten and, mm. and gen- generally angry and a bit naggy. Yeah, and then he goes and runs. He smashes himself into what looks like a off-screen into a light bulb in the wall. Mm. He seems to pierce his left eye. And then we've also broken some pictures, although why they have a picture of a waterfall that they would see every day on their bookshelf, I don't know. Aesthetics. 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 Nice one. Yeah. So, so possibly he's either severely, at least severely injured or dead. I'm at the point now where I'm really, I'm properly angry about the fact that we're nine episodes in and we haven't seen Audrey, who arguably after Coop was the most popular character in the original series. So there's there's so much fan interest in her. There's so much fan love embedded in her, I think. You know, she she was a character that was so influential, I think, to a lot of people, particularly to women who watch the show. And I'm at a point now where the order of reveal better be the best fucking thing I've ever seen on television. It better be like the most positive thing, like she's just being awesome and kicking ass and, you know... The rest of her family's a disaster, but she's amazing sort of thing for me to feel that this has been warranted. And what I'm really terrified of is that all of these little dribs and drabs of hornage 
uh, going through what's been happening with all of the members of the family, no matter how minor, before we get to see Audrey is just setting us up for... Disappointment. Disappointment and some kind of tragedy and something awful that's been happening to her for the past 25 years. And that is just... If I was in a capacity of being able to quit the show, which I cannot because I have a podcast, <laughs> that would be the point where I would quit. And we've discussed this, in fact, um, when after, was it episode six or seven, mm. where everyone was suddenly like, um, when we learnt that Doppelkoop had been seen coming out of the area where Audrey was after, no, yeah, the, after the bank explosion. Uh, after the bank explosion. And, you know, there were lots of theories about what had happened. And I actually started worriedly texting Haley to say that if one of the particular theories came came true around rape and Richard or something like that, that would be it. I would have to quit because I just felt like no series could be worth it to, to give us this really amazing character and to know that she's returning and then give us these dribs and drabs and then give us this just there. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm getting the opposite. I'm feeling like she's going to be more and more important the longer it's left and the more key she's going to be. Because oh, well, I hope so. Well, I, I, I went to a panel by with Cheryl and Fenn at Oz Comic Con last week. Oh, yes, we should discuss this. Yeah, so, um, and of course, you know, people were like, what the hell's going on? Why are you here to promote a show you're not even in? So it was a much more polite version of that, of course. And she was like, well, I've been call- I called David and I said, what the hell, have my scenes been cut? And he's like, no, 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 just keep watching. So she was feeling optimistic about it. You know, she definitely shot a whole bunch of scenes. So I'm feeling optimistic about it. Mm. If I can talk about your interview with Eamon for oh, yeah, a moment. Yeah. In it, he mentions that he has to watch every episode because he's not sure whether or not yeah. he'll be appearing in it. So Audrey um, was doing the same thing. Sorry, Sharon's doing the same thing. Exactly. And so that makes me go, well, how, how, but how important is she going to be? You know, like how, how much can we trust what Lynch told Cheryl and mm. that she told us around well, her, her actual screen time? Well, I know, well they, she, she's had an ongoing con- contact with him for the last 26, 27 years. So I figure they've got some sort of relationship. He's going to he low, – she's been acting constantly the whole time, so she's got the chops, no question. So I figure that he's no, he knows how loved she is and that he would give her like a big, a big role. He's not, she's not going to have a – I would be very surprised if she has some sort of small cameo or something like that after yeah. all this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping what I'm fingers crossing is like I'm hoping it's something – kind of along the lines of how Diane's been revealed and... And is suddenly of, there. And is suddenly there and is very, very predicated within the storylines in which she appears in and is very important and has a lot of great lines and has a lot of great material yeah. to work with. That is what I'm hoping for. Yeah, I'm worried she's going to be in a wheelchair or somehow have a sustained injury from the bank vault explosion. Mm, yeah, that worries. But yeah. then you know, a lot of people thought Doc Haywood was killed in the in episode twenty nine, and he's that's true. He was back. He was fine. He was okay. I mean, he had yeah. a much worse injury than than she did. Plus, she was saved by Jack Nance slash Pete Martell slash Pete Martell. Slash, yeah. yeah, dear Pete. Yes, no. Well, you know, there's 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 all sorts of things she could could be getting up to. You know, regardless of how she may have come out of the bank vault and she may have gone on to do amazing things, mm. no matter. You yeah. know. Well, the Horns are now living in a very nice house. They're not living in a hotel anymore. Which makes me yeah. think it's not going to be Johnny bringing in the money. Ben doesn't seem like he's mm. doing that much that he wasn't doing 20, 21 years ago. Sorry, 26 years ago. So I'm thinking Audrey's like doing super well. They've got a really big house. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think it's going to be good. That's what we hope. Yeah. Uh, stop leaving us hanging. <laughs> Speaking of leaving listeners hanging, back to the um, Silver Cylinder and Bobby Ooh. Briggs, who just kick, <laughs> they kick Chad out of the, uh, the conference room, which they're in for about 10 seconds. Yeah, he deserved it. Yeah. Yep. With his stinking no. Don't try and pull the oh, but you guys have donuts in here all <laughs> the time, Chad. You don't deserve donuts. And I think he's eating gum and bosia. 
<laughs> there might have been cream corn in that second, third, yeah, third it, bowl. Yeah, it, sure. it, it did look pretty suspect. It was, there was a lot of oil and corn going on oh, in that. Oil and corn. Yeah. Well, it was all in plastic. <gasps> oil. Yep. Oil. Oh, yeah, nice one. Yeah. And all it takes to be able to actually open this thing is to throw it at the ground. <laughs> it has to make a particular tone. Yeah, well, that, yeah. yeah, that's that's true. But it's interesting that Major Briggs knew Bobby well enough to know that that was something he'd be really good at doing, throwing. Like, throwing shit. Like, a, like, you know, like a, the quarterback that he was on the <laughs> Twin Peaks football team. Like uh, the tanty thrower that he was. Yes. <laughs> We've got to mention um, on the way out to throw the this cylinder at the ground, we have to walk past Lucy, who's not here. She's not here. She's on break. She's having her lunch. Leave her alone. I like this. This this was very recognisable to me from my own workplace. Good boundaries. Yeah, good boundaries where you're like, I'm at my desk, but I am eating and no one asked me anything. <laughs> that was brilliant. And so, yeah, so... I, I was, but this beautiful thing is watching Bobby's face during this whole thing because it's, it's like secret him between him and his dad and it's his revelation. It's, working, it's like the sun shining up on his And particularly because he's just been, you know, he's just had that wonderful conversation with his mother and her saying to him that your, your dad always believed in you. And, <laughs> and so he pelts it to the ground and this beautiful tone springs out. And we're going to have to get friend of the show um, and future guest Thembi Soddle to, to, to look at this through her frequency analyzer and give us the exact stats on what tone this is and whether it's mm-hmm. numerically key to something else in the show, which is entirely possible. Um, and then we get a note with inside that. And, of course, I was like, oh, my God, it's a missing diary page. But it's not. It's not. No, it's code. It is. So Haley tunes out. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, I know everyone loves the numbers. I know everyone loves the codes. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Okay. May may it bring you may it bring you joy, but I fall asleep. How do you feel about codes? I love codes. Cool. Okay. Yeah, they're great. Then we get a little note that says 253 yards east of Jack Rabbit's Palace, the symbol of two peaks, and then a rising sun above one of them. Above the other peak, we have the symbol from the car, the playing card that Doppelkip was carrying around, which is we now recognise to be the experiment slash the mother that buffs dun, dun, forward dun. the bubbles and Bob and the weird. Um, Toad locust from the last... Toad cricket. Let's never talk about the toad locust ever again. Whatever that that creature is. Um, With a crescent above it. And then before you reach Jack Rabbit's palace, put some soil from that area in your pocket. Then the time of 2.53 and the dates 10 slash 1 and 10 slash 2, which is the 1st and 2nd of October, which gives them like gateways. So this... Do we think that Glastonbury Grove is 253 yards east of Jack Rabbit's palace? I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a chance. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, yeah, okay, cool. Let's just say that's true. But then 253, there it is again. So he's got to stay grounded. This is another instance of Lynch using very obvious imagery to talk about being grounded. So it's shoes and actual earth. I know we got to spend so much time in Twin Peaks in this part. Was, it's very nice. Was, it very does make me really happy. Even when I'm not sure what Lucy and Andy are doing, it does make me really happy to be in Twin Peaks. Mm. All we needed was like a little shot at the diner or something and it just would have been complete. Mm. Yeah, I'm feeling like the diner and the roadhouse are being set up as like almost like the good and evil places of meeting in Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Bad it's stuff keeps happening at the roadhouse. Bad things happen at the roadhouse. Mysterious house. and good things seem to happen at the diner. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's because Norma and Shelley are there and we love them. We do. Exactly. Although she, Norma's doing an awful lot of accounts. <laughs> I thought she would have had like, you know. Maybe she's a, got a chain of roadhouses now. I love True. that idea. That's cool. Chain of Because I was thinking, if you're going to introduce technology, it does delivery at least, now. At least introduce MYOB or some sort of accounting software, so she doesn't have to sit at the back table in the diner just doing accounts. Lynch has never heard of MYOB. He's, out, he's outsourced. <laughs> oh, but he can have a computer inside a desk, but he's not going to have MYOB because that's woodworking, Steph. <laughs> it's true. It's a beautiful table. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I concede your point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and talking to conceding points, um, sorry, moving on to other points that we can, can and can't concede, um, Buckhorn Morgue. So this is the beautiful scene of Diane, of Diane sitting in the waiting room. <gasps> Where her, her, like, her costuming just like matches perfectly that hideous plasticky couch. Yeah. Turquoise dream. I can't decide if I love her costuming or am repulsed by her costuming in this scene. I'm sorry, ma'am, you can't smoke here. <laughs> oh. no, one, no one wants to do it. Okay. No. Okay, and then she calls them fucking pansies. And I was like, hold on a moment. How are we? How do we feel about the new, Diane using pansies? If, I, if another character used pansies, it might be... I don't know. I'm always very okay with some characters sometimes signal posting that maybe they're not as progressive in certain realms as others. I think it's very realistic mm-hmm. for yep. the vast majority of people. Sometimes it's good with characters that you otherwise identify with to sometimes be pulled up by their prejudices and mm. realise like, oh... You know, often really good people have these sort of nasty blind spots. Do we think intentionally that's what was happening with her use of pansies in this episode? I don't though? think it was intentionally. I think it was actually just a scripting thing where they probably thought it was funny. Mm. Mm. Um, so then we get the first time we've ever seen Diane alone. Where she pulls out the phone and gets the all caps version of Doppelcoop's text around the dinner table. The conversation is lively. Mm. Which makes me think, is this a continuity error or has somebody forwarded this message or rewritten this message, mm. which has come from an unknown number to her there we go. now and, and is it unknown? Does she not know who it's come from? Well, it could have come I from somebody who... that's the question. Yeah, that's possible. Because it might be coming from somebody who has her number, but she doesn't have their number because they just shot their Diamante phone. But I think I feel like it's been routed via Mr Todd in Las Vegas. Mm. I think there's a chance... Because there was a part in the very first episode where he was talking about getting an, an assistant that she had the job. And back then we thought it was Tracy, but now it could be Diane. Mm. It's interesting. There's obviously a lot of threads in which this could go. It could be a hell of a blindsiding thing if it turns out that Diane has actually been secretly in cahoots with Doppelcoop all along. Like that, there's a middle yeah, finger to that fan I, base. Well, <laughs> no, those scenes with her and mm. prison, I'm just like, that's nah, too legit. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think she might. I think I'm probably being pathetically optimistic. She's undertaking her own investigations, and she's actually been onto this. That wouldn't surprise me at mm. all. I really mm. like that theory as well. Mm, I think it's more likely. She seems to be very good. I mean, Cooper's pretty important to her. Mm. Good Cooper. That's the thing. I'm I'm still steadfastly on the side of no. Diane is she's doing the good work. But she also couldn't put up more barriers if she wanted to. This is true. Yeah, she she definitely doesn't want them. As close as they're getting. Yeah, because she was exasperated when her phone was blocked on the plane. She wasn't, so she was expecting, I feel like she was expecting mm. a message. Yeah, which makes the fact that this is the message that comes through very interesting considering she was clearly expecting something. Was she expecting this? Yeah, I feel like she was. And oh God, I can't wait to find out more about this because it's such a weird left, weird hook to throw in, in this story. This is why it's been such an interesting experience going from mainlining seasons one and two and now having to go into the drives and drabs of watching something as it comes out. Mostly when these things happen now, I'm just kind of like, mm, can I just not find out what's going to happen? It's, it's been such a change in watching it. I think if maybe I had been... You know, if I'd mainlined it 10 years ago, I, I wouldn't be having quite these feelings of frustration that mm. are so enhanced by having had all my answers yeah. such as they were over such a period of time so recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes it so interesting the fact that even though we're in age of streaming, 
Twin Peaks is very, it's been very deliberately released of, no, you get an episode a week if you're lucky. And it, it kind of is like the old experience of watching something on telly. And having ha- to wait. And having to wait. And you have to tune in at the same time each week to get a new one. Yeah, and you and have to have conversations about it to understand mm. it more, which forces you to talk to people. No. Uh, who wants promote. to do that? Promote. Get more people into it. What's this show everyone's talking about? <laughs> Um, so we get Lieutenant Mackley leading Cole, Knox, Albert and Tammy to the Headless Body while giving us a handy recap of the Buckhorn storyline, which was very useful because it's been quite a while since we've been... I'd forgotten key points, so it was actually really It was useful. very helpful. Um, so after the recap of the Buckhorn storyline, Albert gets another zinger with what happens in season two. Best line of the so, entire show. Love and then, of course, Cole does his apologies in advance for Albert. Um, and then we're back with Constance Talbot. <gasps> Mortician. Who was having who was having a very good one too with Albert there oh for a God, while. That was, that was wonderful. Oh, I, I thought it was excellent. <laughs> Cole raining on their parade. Um, Cole's eye games in that were, were magnificent. I feel like Cole spends a lot of his time raining on parades deliberately and, you know, mm. sometimes not so. just being an old-fashioned gentleman. Mm. <laughs> mm. I'm not impressed by that terminology. <laughs> so this is the principal of your high school, not to mention the marble champion of the sixth grade. When did he lose his marbles? I thought that was well, an excellent joke. She's saying, and it was joke. so fast. The pay, her time. I know, beautiful. like you, you almost like realized like two seconds after they delivered the line, she were just like, "Oh no, no, they're joking. They're joking. This is oh, jokes." Yeah, that was so good. Yeah. <laughs> and Albert stares at her, and Cole notices, and then hereby, the, some of the fandom are questioning them as Talbot. Tal, Tal, Talbot is uh, Constance's last name. Yes, Albert. it is. Yeah, yeah. So they've already been shipped. It took, it took good. Minute, minutes. Yep. Done. Good. Um, I was doing it. That's what found it spot. <laughs> uh, it turns out that William Hastings, along with Ruth the Librarian, were publishing a strange little blog. And Mackley re- um, refreshes our memory, and it turns out to be a strange little blog about an alternate dimension. <laughs> Stephanie is currently holding up her hands into a heart shape because she loves the blog so the much. The blog is, is yeah. just so beautiful. So Here we, could, we are at the age of 16 again. Oh God, we could, yes, it's exactly like that. So we could do an entire episode just about this blog because it is loaded with <laughs> symbolism and imagery. I feel like Stephanie has a lot to talk about the blog. I think we should let Steph go no, with the totally blog. No, it's totally fine. We can, we can just – it just – I'm just not sure why it's so clearly a 1999 blog when the season is not set in 1999. But, you know, we have all these other throwbacks, such as with the Diamante phone, you know, the computer coming out of the desk and all of that sort of thing. It's obviously intentional. I just can't decide what the intention is. I think it's to show that they started in 1997, but then they've never felt the need to update it. Because but Why? <laughs> because it's doing what How's it needs it to do. still being hosted on GeoCities exactly. or whatever it is? Oh, my goodness. That side went down years ago. <gasps> clearly, they had to have moved it somehow. I don't know how. Bill's, Bill's clearly better at the interwebs than I am. Yeah, but, I um, Does Squarespace have an option? Which oh, is like GeoCities at circa 1996. Yeah, where you can have like little blingy, flashy. Do the web rings still work? I used to navigate the whole internet by those web rings. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, uh, so, so, yes, I, I have not gone and looked at the actual site. If you haven't figured it out yet, yes, it is an actual site yeah, that you can go visit. The search for the zone.com. Oh, I love that they f- decide to call the crazy space alternate dimension the zone. Mm. It's the most 1990 thing ever, yeah. along with the blog. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. And it has a visitor counter as well that's gone up a lot. <laughs> I can now. imagine. Recently. So apparently, yes, there's there's a lot of things that you can explore there if you are so that way inclined. The, 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 the theory and conspiracy. Yeah. 
Yes. And so um, one Reddit user called RoopPZ noted that the person who's, who has co-written this blog with Bill Hastings is called Heinrich Weigel. And his hypothesis is Werner Weigel, a journalist, um, and the physicist Henrik Hertz, the man who first conclusively proved the existence of electromagnetic waves, are both buried in Alsdorf Cemetery in Hamburg, the biggest rural cemetery in the world. So it's possibly a combination of their two names. Uh, this is a, sort of you know, this is a Frostian element, isn't I, it? <laughs> I'm totally on board with that. Oh, yeah, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> so anyway, so then we get a, a conversation about this blog and then Tammy gets sent in to interrogate slash elicit information from Bill Hastings. Yeah, so I feel like what she does isn't quite an interrogation because I feel like Bill is just in such a state of disarray. Like he cannot actually be you – can, you can just gently prod, which I think Tammy did enormously well. I really enjoyed that we finally got to see a scene of – Tammy yes. doing what she does and doing it extremely well and doing it extremely competently and figuring out very quickly, okay, this guy is a mess. I'm not going to be able to go hard on him at all. I just have to ask my questions, ask them again if I need to. Don't get mad. Just be very straight with him yeah. as much as I can, which was great. And it also provided a lot of wonderful physical movements from Christabel, which fed into our theory, Steph, that she is actually a snake. She is 100% a snake. The first time I ever told Haley she was a snake, Haley was like, no, she can't be a snake because Lynch loves her. And I'm like, no, no, not like a snitch, like <laughs> a physical snake. Um, and I saw a theory posited on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, saying that maybe she was an alien who had learnt how to be a human by watching videos of catwalk, of models <laughs> on the catwalk, which I buy as well. So maybe she's an alien snake in a human body. But if you just look at her movements, she's very... And I think that this scene was really good about that, not just physically but in the way in which she interrogated such as it was Hastings because she just – she kind of waits until exactly the right moment and then she pounced. She did exactly what needed to be done. She didn't exert too much energy. She didn't exert too little. She did exactly what needed to be done and then she left. She didn't bother with anything else. That's what a snake does. Yes, and I also enjoyed the connecting later scene where she's loitering out on the <laughs> yes. steps with Cole and Diane while they share a cigarette well, and Albert, opine about the past well, in a, in a fuzzy indisposed. manner. Indisposed. <laughs> and um, I really loved this because... One, it was this wonderful scene of Gordon and Diane actually having a nice moment together. They and tend, having a friendship. And having a friendship. You can see that they've had this really long-standing relationship with each other for a very long time where they know each other very well and they kind of were having that rapport moment where they really weren't paying attention to anything else that was going on. And you could see Tammy staying up at, off at the side, standing in her usual very ostentatious attention grabbing way and then all of a sudden it's like her body just collapses like she just slouches in on herself and then all of a sudden she's like fidgeting like she's like a schoolgirl who's like waiting outside the principal's office like waiting for someone to take notice of her and it was this amazing moment of oh everything she is is a front like she's so just trying to put forward this idea of what she thinks she should be and how she should behave in these situations and maybe it's not exactly who she is at all. Yeah, and doesn't know how to deal with Diane. Doesn't know how to deal with Diane, doesn't know how to deal with Diane's relationship with Gordon because she clearly also wants some form of attention from Gordon. I'm I'm far more imagining from a uh, career perspective than anything else. And it's clear that Gordon very, very much professionally respects Diane as well as being a friend. And I think that's what Tammy wants. She's, She's after that. And she gets little 
dribs of it, but I think Gordon still kind of treats her a little bit like a child. And, mm. and you can see that in her body language, like her body language becomes childish in this almost like petulant way of but why aren't you behaving like that with me i loved this whole scene because i felt like it showed us so much about each of those characters just reinforcing some of the things we might have suspected or known beforehand um around the friendship with diane and cole he's trying and she's often pushing back and he tried again and she kind of half-heartedly let him because she kind of wants to let him and yeah. I think that that was really obvious in that scene as well mm. yeah um we also forgot to mention that the ring was found the Constance showed the ring that was found in um Briggs's stomach yes the one that is engraved yes. we assume to Dougie because it's signed to Janie. Dougie love Janie yeah, Janie. yeah. then uh, Cole and Albert go out for a quiet tete-a-tete which of course involves putting hands on shoulders mm-hmm. as do a lot of key scenes and then um, they were like, Cooper knew Briggs. Briggs. Cooper was around Briggs 25 years ago and now Cooper shows up in this neck of the woods. On the loose in this neck of the woods. Mm. Right. So, yes, there, it feels like these threads are starting to come together. And they or, definitely or know he's a threat and they definitely know that they need to essentially, you know, lock him down as soon as they can. Mm. Yeah. So what did you think of uh, Matthew Lilliard's performance as Bill Hastings in this? I love thing? him. Far out. I know. This was another thing where we were just sort of like... Who is this guy? Why is he here? Because I have never been able to stand Matthew Lillard in any role before Mm. and I still can't stand him in this, but I love him in this. I think that he's doing a stellar job of just Mm. being a probably perfectly competent, sane human who is has experienced a whole bunch of things in really quick succession that is just driving him over the edge and he can't explain what's happening to him. It's got a lot for someone to deal with. Mm. So he and Ruth found a time and place to be to be able to access the zone. They went there, they mm. found Briggs who said that he was hibernating mm. and he asked them to get some, them some coordinates. So they went out, so Ruth did some research, managed to source these coordinates and as soon as she did, suddenly a whole bunch of people were around. She was killed and Briggs was pulled out and killed, it sounds like. So they still haven't actually worked out who did that but he just said, uh, there were so many people there, I don't know what is happening to me. And then he starts mm. talking about things that, that he was hoping to do with Ruth. Yeah, which kind of is, it, it really runs this this really bizarre line of like being hilarious and then absolutely heartbreaking at the same time yeah Yeah. um i'm interested in like all of a sudden all these people all all around do we think a swarm of woodsmen killed ruth i think it's possible yeah yeah that that, that was kind just because obviously we're fresh with all of the imagery Mm. of part eight and so we know how how the woodsmen behave and how they can kind of all of a sudden appear on mass yeah and yeah i think that's the only lots of people around that we've seen so far mm. so i think it's a logical conclusion also they wouldn't have made much sense without having part eight true just slipped in before this and then he um he's given a bunch of pictures and identifies briggs by tammy and then he he signs his name and the date now, now the, the camera zooms in to show us this and he also mumbles the date while he's crying and the, again the fandom is pretty split on what this date is I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the 20th of September that's what I wrote down yeah except earlier you were thinking maybe it's and the and then 29th. I went back and watched again and I was like well we do get told earlier in this episode that the first of, and first of October is in two days time exactly mm. so but maybe. do we know that what's happening in Buckhorn and what's happening in Twin Peaks is happening it's concurrently yes so this is what if the, they the are not happening concurrently I'm going to be so angry because I am watching this entire season based on the idea that things are happening approximately concurrently I'll accept a few hours I'll even accept a day but the idea that there's no days or something mm. like that different 
I'll probably be pretty upset, I think. Yeah, well, the, but the hotel room key being sent kind of puts a, da- a, a date stamp on things happening in different places being relatively the same time. Mm-hmm. So You would assume, you'd hope. Yeah, and so, you know, FBI are flying in from Philadelphia to Buckhorn, so that's kind of tying things in together, like, mm-hmm. in a t- temporal way. Um, but also there's a few things that are, are kind of lingering, like the way that the, the pacing at the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station makes me feel like they feel like they've just dropped a whole bunch of cases, they should be doing stuff. It feels like they would be before these big events happen, like a kid got killed but in a hit and run, drug deals, all this sort of stuff taking place. Also, um, Hawkers seems to have discovered the the Red Room, or the, the gateway at the at Glastonbury Grove, but hasn't mentioned it since. So mm-hmm. that seems like something you would do if it happened in the future, but then... I don't know. I don't know. It's <laughs> so hard to tell. At the moment, it, really it feels like every, it's more likely that things are happening at the same time. Yeah. Different time zones because we're in different parts of the states, but mm. at the same time. And that's the thing. Like, just because the first two seasons worked reasonably linear, linearly in terms of time doesn't mean that that's the same playing ground. No, that but we're it's in also now. something that historically they've done. They haven't messed mm. around. I mean, they've messed around with time once you go into the Red Room and mm. the lodges and stuff. That's a different game, but on Earth, it's always. I think, I think um, Frost is a big fan of things happening sequentially. I just don't know how we're supposed to make sense of it if things aren't approximately temporally aligned, mm. if, if they're so completely out when they're in the same plane. Mm. So how are we supposed yeah. to understand anything? So it is interesting that this has been a deliberately confused 2-0 or 2-9 and we've been shown it by the camera that it's important and he says it out loud so it's very important but we still don't know because what we're not 100%. God damn it. So <laughs> Um, and so, anyway, so um, Hastings describes the major floating up in the air, like the giant slash the wood, the fire yeah. Um And, so and he, almost like he's. Did he say something about his head floating off? Yeah. Yeah. So that's. So I'm the assuming that, that makes sense for the, ha- the head that we've just seen floating disembodied in space. Yeah. Imagine just being a head floating around in space for all eternity. I don't know how I feel about that. And then, uh, yeah, he said the words Cooper, Cooper. So that everyone is standing on the other side of the glass going, oh my God. Mm-hmm. And of course, we saw the phrase Cooper, Cooper repeated on the little slip of paper that was in the yeah, tube. In the yeah. And of course, Hawk says, two Coopers. Thank you, Hawk. While we're all Thank you for that elucidation. Well, we're all looking at two and a half Coopers. Mm. Mm. Well, it's really only two Coopers now, I suppose, because Dougie's kind of been liquidated. Yeah, but then he, the, 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 the piece of paper Dougie did anyway. say Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. When he first oh, it did. It said Cooper, Cooper, and, and then there's like th- another Coop like cut off. Yeah. Um. So I, I actually thought that that was the sound of the Major's voice when we got... Um, when, we, when that was read out by Sheriff Truman, it sounded mm. like he was either impersonating very well or it was an actual recording of Cooper, Cooper mm. that particular way that he says it. Um, and so then we get the whole scuba diving Bahamas carry on from Bill Hastings and then we get the dismissive com- um, comment from Albert, fruitcake anyone, uh, which is said so straight-facedly that it's like he knows it's not a joke yeah. <laughs> as he's saying it to Yeah, it's very weird. He, he often has that cadence of just kind of like he knows that what he's saying isn't kosher, but it's like breaking the tension of what's mm. going on. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it's a strange tick to have. But I actually think it's a little bit out of place here because mm. the thing is all of the reveals that he's just made while they've been watching that, he might want to break the tension, but... Albert probably believes him. He's yeah. probably getting those things and, and understanding them. So by attempting to dismiss him... Um, well, it might have been a smart thing to say in front of Mackley. Mm, yes, true. To like, yeah, to make him think is that not, this doesn't mean anything not to pay yeah. attention. One more thing is on the website, actually the most valuable piece of information on this, the search for the zone, is this hidden uh, coordinates. 
Uh, they are actually on the on the website down the very bottom. So of course somebody's put these into Google Maps, and it turns out to be a farmhouse on a place called Lookout Mountain Road near the town of Spearfish in South Dakota. I bet someone's already started visiting there. As yeah, well. there are some people yeah. who are yeah who live nearby who are going to go check it out. There you go. The best. I love the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and then uh, we move to the Great Northern at night, <gasps> but not only the Great Northern; it's the Great Northern circa 1989. Oh my god! We get gosh. some weird shots from the from season one of the yeah. waterfall, and the, I don't know where they came from, but God, that made me excited. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Sometimes they must just feel like recycling these shots. One because it's probably easier, and two, it's just kind of like, oh, we've got to give them something. Oh, yeah, because they know that feed them, all feed across them the world are going to be jumping on their couches. See, this yeah. is why the photo of the waterfall was on the wall earlier to give us some oh, some old school. Yeah. So See, right. yeah, it's true. It is. Yeah, awesome. they love doing that shit. But also, it's kind of horrifically tragic if we if Johnny Horn has died and Ben is doesn't know and he's walking wandering <gasps> around with yes. Beverly. with Beverly and looking for the hum, mm. the hum that I hope in my heart is Josie. I know it's not Josie, but every time the hum, comes, what do you think it could be? I have no idea what the because that's the thing. I don't want it to be anything but Josie. Mm, yeah, same. I'm focused on it being Josie. So or or Josie and other spirits who are also trapped in the woods. Yes, because I, I imagine yeah, the the Great Northern was always a bit of a haunted joint, mm. and yeah. I'm thinking Josie is not the only presence. Because in an place. original scene in episode 29, we were meant to see a shadow of Josie. In the red what? room. What? This is, this is a deleted scene. What? Yeah, I was. I'll send. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes just so people know that I'm not talking about <laughs> my hat. But uh, yeah, there was meant to be a, a, a reference to her in that. <gasps> this is so exciting because you were talking to like Josie's like two main fangirls here. Yeah, so. right. Um, we were like, yeah, this is very key information which you mm. should be immediately supplied with as soon as we finish recording. It's so exciting. Yeah. Oh, so, oh, because Josie was a very important character to us when we were watching well, she the first two seasons. So amazing. She was and meant to book in the entire series when yeah. they were going to finish when she's trapped in the doorknob. That was meant to be the end of the entire series before fan pressure forced them to make more episodes. Wow. That's amazing. Did you know, I, I figured most people do know this, that uh, originally the role of Rose, Josie was actually written for Isabella Rossellini. Mm, yes. Because she and Lynch were doing doing yeah. the do or at least had recently done the do. So many and stories about Twin Peaks are about who's doing the do and that actually changes storylines, which yeah. I find so, so interesting. True. Which yeah. is so amazing. Yeah, and um, still irritates Sherilyn Fenn 26 yeah, years yeah, later. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yeah, and so but the fact that we did get the gift that is Joan Chen in, in Twin Peaks, particularly because Twin Peaks is a very – White it's a, show. It's a very homogenous show. I actually yelled at the screen mm. earlier in this episode when the um, sergeant at the Las Vegas Police Department was mm. a black man. Oh, yeah. Mm. And thus making the only non-white person in, I think, the whole episode. Aside I think from Hawk, so. Apart from Hawk. Our regular, obviously. And obviously that made Josie amazing. And mm. so as much as I love Isabella, I'm really yeah. happy that we had yeah. Joan Chen. Because Joan Chen is fabulous. And I think that she did a lot with that character. She could have just been a really flat, awful stereotype. I think the way she was written yeah. often was very stereotypical. Well, at the beginning, there was a definite trajectory of her being really fascinating and really yeah. interesting character. And then season two, she gets... Really flattened out. And I think I, yeah. I always found it fascinating that the way other characters often spoke about Josie, it seemed like they were talking about a character that we never actually saw. Because yeah, what Joan absolutely. Chen did with the character was make her so much filled with depth and so many different layers and there was just such skill involved in getting you invested in this character that almost like it seemed like 
sometimes every other character in the show was completely raid against and wanted you to dislike, but you could never dislike her. No mm. matter what she did. No. Speaking of things she did, do you remember the very, very first thing she did? Tell us, because she because she was the very first person you saw. Was she yeah. looking in a mirror? And turned her head. And what else she was doing? Was she combing her hair or something like that? She was humming. <gasps> so I, That's it. I Feed like our theory, Andy. In, in the walls. <laughs> <laughs> and that letter was just a trick to throw us off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She'll materialise. Yeah. That'll be beautiful. Um, so Ben and Beverly are wandering around. Um, should we just call it Josie? The Josie noise. Josie hum. Um, mm. And it's a mesmerising tone. And he, then he starts describing essentially the, using the words people have been using for decades to describe the soundtrack to Twin Peaks. It's like the ring of a monastery bell, otherworldly. And then Beverly starts making the moves. Oh, and, and then Ben puts her off. He can't do it. I don't know why this is. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I believe his redemption. Mm. Do you have a theory about his redemption? I have a theory. I have a vague theory and it will depend on whose spawn Richard is, basically. I have a feeling that Ben, like at some point in these past 25 years, fell again and Mm. fell pretty badly Mm. and did a big mistake. And that's why when you see him now, he's so much more tightly wound upon himself He's very restrained now very I think that's restrained very clear yeah it's an almost a monastic life because he's living in a smaller place he seems to have fewer responsibilities he's mm. have got a lot of self-control or he's practicing a lot of self-control he's telling off jerry for not respecting women you know mm. so i think maybe frost is playing with a bit of duality rather than having them ben and jerry like the beginning they've got jerry who's given into these temptations and his dark sides and he's having this horrendous time and ben's being pulled in the other direction but again yeah i think a lot is going to depend on yeah I, I i think there's definitely some more horton family secrets but also like out. in this scene we're kind of brought back to the very beginning of season one of episode one and season one where mm. we know we see leyland and we know he's about to receive some horrific news mm. but in this we don't ever get that because you know the phone doesn't ring and we don't hear about jerry horn's situation yeah or johnny's sorry johnny horn mm. honestly johnny well horn. who knows someone could find jerry tripping in a very disturbing fashion <laughs> doing backflips doing backflips yeah, on his. his foot that's not his yeah, well, I would, yeah i'm half expecting know. him to be abducted at some point you know there's a lot of troubles going on in the horn family right now he could be called for a variety of reasons <laughs> <laughs> um and so the scene is left um, hanging with beverly saying you're a good man ben mm. Do we believe that? I yelled, no, you're not, into the room. So (laughs) So there's that. And then we go to the roadhouse and we're like, okay. Yeah, and there's some horrific hipster DJing going on there. Hudson Mohawk. Far out, not into that. Playing half a song. Uh, That's what we've been calling it. Like... Okay. Sure. So he's he's doing the very visually unexciting thing that a lot of people do, which is play a mixer on stage while looking at it. It's a real, th- real problem to overcome for a lot of like, electronic musicians is what to do. What do you Music do? criticism here with Hazel. Yeah, well, no, I seriously used to play a gig with a guy who would literally check his emails on his laptop while we were playing. And the sound was <laughs> fantastic. I have, I have seen this. I've minds. seen this happening. Like, it was great stuff, but it was still all just press the space bar. That's, you know. Anyway, I'm not saying that's what happens. You've got to groove at least a little bit. But we don't. Do some moves. We don't even get and a And check your email. Moves and check your email. Coming to a major laser gig near you. <laughs> oh, we can't go using names. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we? I don't know. Anyway, um, 
we don't even get a whole Hudson Mohawk song. We get mm. half a song and then he goes off and he's replaced by Au Revoir Simone who are in exactly the same outfits they were in, in part four. Yes, yeah. but they have three keyboards now. Oh, yes. Yes. So mm. this is the first time we've had a return it for is. a band, yeah. which I think is interesting. And it's an interesting choice, mm. those, those women. Yes, there. but in between the two musical acts, we have some new characters. We have another musician, in this case Guy Ferreira. Yes, who up. is That's playing an extremely dirty dirtbag team. Mm. In this episode's most repulsive scene. Yeah. Yeah. And that says something in Twin Peaks sometimes. I had a friend who was apparently eating her dinner during this scene. She was very unhappy. Yeah. No one wants to see anyone's armpit rash on telly. Do we (laughs) think that the burger place she got a job from is where Lucy gets her lunch from? Oh. Oh, That's an interesting call. I was also thinking... Does the diner serve burgers? Whoa. Mm. I can imagine her getting fired. I can imagine her getting fired from the diner because she's just like filthy. Surely the diner and, serves and burgers. Norma would just be like, what is this? But, but yeah. yeah. But, like, <laughs> but she mentions that I went across, I got a job across the street. Yeah. Doing what, the same thing. What is across the street from the roadhouse? An antique store oh. that refused to sell me props that they had leased out <laughs> to people. And I was extremely disappointed by this. I'm sorry, sir. I've signed a non-disclosure agreement. I can't sell you anything. I'm like, come on, please. You can you can double the price. I'll buy something very small. Did you, did you randomly just buy anything in the hope I, that maybe no, it'll show up? Um, I do consider it, but I thought it's a dang. stupid thing to do, and I should settle down. Anyway, but in this show, you no, know, I don't. I don't think we've been told exactly what lies across the street, but it's possible. No. So yes, so we have Ella, who's Sky Ferreira, and we have Chloe, who's played by Carolina. Windra, mm. I believe, and they're having a vaguely cryptic conversation with the world's emptiest beer can. Yes. Every time she picked up that beer can, I just got really angry. Could they not have put some water in I that know. beer can? It's like Gilmore Girls Give her a little co- bit of paper weight. coffee cups. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I don't understand why that. Yeah, so, yeah, they do have this vaguely cryptic, cryptic conversation apart from the bits where obviously they're talking about, I've worked, worked at this burger place, I've worked, I'm working over the road, and they use the terms zebra and penguin at particular points. And I cast my, you know, I cast my eyes back and I was like, oh, you know how the thing about how the roadhouse is still pimping out teenage girls? Yep. Is penguin and zebra, is that code for clients yeah possibly my first thought was these are the two um, 15 year old um, prostitutes sorry sex workers that, that, that were mentioned before but then I was like I checked mm. their ages and I was like Sky Ferreira's 25 she yeah. could pass for a teenager but mm. it seems a bit of a stretch but then we Tw- did Twin have Peaks is very big on having 20 year olds playing teenagers. exactly that was my that was exactly my train of thought so I was like these could possibly be the 15 year old Sex workers we've been, yeah. we've been introduced to, or or at least you know, I'm assuming you know the Roadhouse was always dealing with a lot of girls at mm. any one time, so they could be, you know, of a vast variety of of, of you know yeah. sex worker. So my thought was like, oh, hang on, black and white animals, black oh. and white floor, black and I'm like, what, what does it mean? I don't know. So nothing. <laughs> but um, you got to pull these bows, and I sometimes know. they go nowhere, but you got to exactly. pull them. <laughs> Um, and they swear an awful lot. Every single sentence has fuck in it at some mm. point. The fucker fired me. That's fucked. What's a big fucking deal? I did the fucking work. How can you fuck up serving burgers? Sort of thing. And then, we, But the most exciting thing is, of course, this scratching. So it's like, is this would a simple... Would we call that exciting? Well, well we call it super gross, Andy. We would, yeah. <laughs> but it would also be like, it's under the left pit. It's like, this is the, this is the arm that got cut off by Mike. This is the life, left arm that was... Is this really where Twin Peaks theorising goes? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, in, the, in, the, in season two, you had the left arm shaking... 
all the time. You had Dougie trying to pull off the left sleeve of his coat in, when he was standing in front of the statue. There's a big thing about left arms. Mm. It's a sinister, you know, thing. And that's where always the, the ring is always on the, the, oh, the wedding finger. It's a the sinister rash, Steph. Yeah. Oh. Mm. So well, I mean, that doesn't bode very well given, you know, kids who were left-handed used to get beaten for being like kids of the devil or whatever. So mm. if the left hand is the sinister, I'm not sure how this I really feel about no. that as a whole. No. This is very old conversation. But yes, no, I'm hoping we're not going to have more skin conditions. Mm. I reckon we're going to have more skin conditions. Oh, I no. I think we'll have more. Do you think it's because evil is just bursting out of people? I do. Well, it does seem like the sort of symbolism that I'm surprised Lynch hasn't used more of, this whole mm. skin and what it means and it being a, a... And kind of being corrupted from within and then all of a sudden appearing without and... Yes, yes. It would be a him thing to do. A transient membrane between worlds, that sort of thing. Mm. I was setting up my TV to watch the finale of a show called Twin Peaks. It's Twin Peaks and it's very end. I panic and change the subject to the Twin Peaks reboot till she gets bored. I mean, she totally gave up on Twin Peaks. It's to David Lynch. I don't like the Twin Peaks experience. Brilliant. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Okay, let's talk theory fish. Theory fish. fish. This is Andy's new baby. Yeah, so I just He's wanted to be very run. proud of this. So <laughs> this took me a long time to come up with. So <laughs> it's called Theory Fish, and I'm going to posit a theory of the week to you, and you can rank, rank it on our fishometer, which goes from um, fish in a percolator, it stinks, all the way up to I caught a trout in my pajamas, it's fresh. So <laughs> you can feel free this to use. This is better than fucking rotten tomatoes. It is way better than rotten tomatoes. Um, you can also use a green butt skunk. If you want to just sit in the middle, because that's the thing that I like that. That's cool. a good measure. Okay, excellent. And have you culled these theories from the internet? I have. Or is excellent? Yeah. So my theory of the week um, <clears throat> is, of course, not mine. It's from somebody else's, and that person is Paul Lob, some user on Reddit, who wrote this. Someone a few weeks ago posited that Dougie Dale's journey parallels the Wizard of Oz. He's had an awakening of heart. He cried at his son. His brain, he got the brain, he made the connections on the insurance form. He got courage, he squeezed the hand off of Ike the Spike. I like the idea, but after today I'm convinced it's right. The way the camera lingered on those ruby red shoes, slash ruby slippers, directing Coop's attention to the outlet. Now he just needs to defeat the Wicked Witch, aka Mr C, in order to return home to Kansas, uh, Washington. Uh, well, we all know Lynch loves Wizard of Oz. Yes. And it's like paralleled in his work like a lot. So I am leaning towards I've got a trap in my trousers yep. um, for this one because I think even if it's something that doesn't end up working out entirely in a way that mirrors the film, I think we've obviously had enough signifiers of it already. And we will continue to have, I think, Wizard of Oz signifiers as we go along, even if it's not kind of like a linear yep. thing. Okay, cool. I'm going to sit comfortably in the middle because I would I would lean more to trout in my trousers if we had any evidence of the road. Right, of okay. Of the yellow brick road. True. Which I feel is a very pivotal part of the entire storyline. Mm. Mm. Okay. I mean, you could argue, argue that Doppelkoop is on a road. Yeah. He's quite constantly He's on a road. But every other example was very closely tied with Dougie. This is true. Mm. Also, I would even go a step further and say the flying monkeys are the woodsmen. Oh, but yeah, you're true. It's maybe a more um, metaphorical. Right? Yeah, I think it might be metaphorical. I don't think it's going to be like a really obvious. You watch parallel. Part ten is now going to have 
a road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my prediction. It's literally going to yell. That Dougie is yep. literally going to follow. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, you can be found at TP Season Three at Facebook or Twitter. You can email us on TP Season Three Podcast at gmail.com. And um, I'm Andy Hazel. You can find me at Andy Ricky. And if people want to follow you online, can they do that anywhere? They can. Uh, I am at Iduichier on Twitter, which is Y I D U I Q I E. Sorry, Punky. You can get the beige chair.